You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This is Father James Scholl. We will continue now with the books 7 and 8 of Aristotle's Politics as a part of our introduction to political philosophy. We want to realize that this book, The Ethics, is a very concisely, carefully argued book in which all of the chapters and all of the parts of the chapters fit together to explain the overall nature of our human activity. What its end is, how it reaches it, uh, the distinctions and the insights that we must make to understand it. In a sense, it is a an exercise in self-reflection. Aristotle's book is not a book that you read in a certain sense as if something is unrelated to you, but you read it as if it is guiding you to take a look at yourself and your own actions. Chapter 9 of my book, at the limits of political philosophy is on the ethics of Aristotle. So it's a chapter about the nature of this particular book which we are talking about. The general subject matter of Book 7 is, first, the status of virtue. And second, it is about a thing we will call the double syllogism, although Aristotle does not use that particular phrase. And finally, we will talk about the discussion of pleasure uh, and its meaning as it appears in the end of Book 7. So, Book 7 and uh, the end of Book 7 on pleasure and the beginning of Book 10 on pleasure may have been one chapter at one particular time and got separated. But in any case, that Aristotle does treat this subject as we saw constantly all the way through. That is the subject matter of my book called Reasonable Pleasures, which is a phrase from Aristotle. Book 7 of Aristotle's Ethics is, in a basic sense, a continuation of the issues raised in Book 3. So Book 3 and Book 7 go together. Namely, the voluntary and the understanding of why a thing is proceeding from our will and why are we responsible for it? The issue of Book 3 had to do with the assigning of praise or blame to an act. Whenever there is a reluctance to assign praise or blame to an act, this is usually a sign of a philosophical ideology and ultimately a determinist presupposition. That is to say, the act has no real responsibility in the person who performed it. Aristotle had treated this issue somewhat negatively, as we saw in Book 3. Namely, he wanted to know what reduced or eliminated responsibility, that is, the three things that may do so, ignorance, passion, or force. The central question was, why, what is the intellectual reason, is this act my act 
in such a way that I can be said to be uh, the cause of the act. Aristotle, the great common-sense philosopher, observed that we do generally and reasonably say that acts done in passion, ignorance, or force are not free acts, or totally free, or at least not wholly, uh, wholly free. That is, they may reduce, but not totally eliminate responsibility for them. Deliberation and decision are also in the same consideration from Book 3, namely, what do we do when we consider something and make it a choice to act on one possibility rather than another? Remember, you can have a choice between doing or not doing things, between many good alternatives, between many bad alternatives, the problem of the lesser evil comes in there, and you may have a choice between some good things and some bad alternatives. All of these are possible and all of them involve your freedom. The mind, the practical intellect, prudence, is what provides knowledge of what these alternatives are and their relation to the end, book one, happiness. We choose means to the end in acting to do this or that. So all of our actions are, in an ultimate sense, a means to our ultimate end. All actions are in the particular, a particular time, place, and circumstances, and unrepeatable. Once Cain kills Abel, Abel remains dead, and Cain remains the one who killed him. Book 7, however, begins with a discussion that can be confusing. Let me unconfuse it, if I may. Aristotle first wants to know the relative strength or weakness of our habits. Each of the major and minor virtues can and should be considered under this aspect. How strongly am I just, or how imperfectly am I temperate? Aristotle lines up the following six classifications, so don't be confused by these, of the degree to which we are virtuous or unvirtuous with regard to any particular virtue, that is, justice, temperance, and so forth. These six, you might say, classifications are the following. First, he talks about superhuman virtue. Second, about the virtuous. Thirdly, about the continent. Fourthly, about the incontinent. Fifthly, about what is vicious. And sixthly, about what is bestial or bestial. Between the continent and incontinent, there is a line, and that divides good and evil, which I will explain in a bit. Obviously, we could write the sixth of these uh, alternatives in this way. Superhuman virtue, bestiality, that's the, the extremes. 
virtue and vice, and continent and incontinent. But to stretch them out in the above way is easier to comprehend. Aristotle is here simply recording something from common sense and observation. Take bravery. There are some for a few who are superhumanly brave in the face of death or pain. Their feats are truly extraordinarily extraordinary. Most people are not so brave, but we all recognize the possibility. Sometimes we see instances in saints or in good people. More people, but still relatively few, are virtuous. That is, they habitually control their fears or their pains or the object of the other virtue so that they do the right thing when it occurs to them when they need to in almost all cases. The continent man, uh, for the most part, does the right thing, but sometimes he does, uh, he does not do it. His habit is not yet so fully uh, formed that when the occasion for an act of bravery or other virtue arises in his life, he always recognizes it or always carries it out as he should. This gets into the problem of why we are not always, or most of us usually, good. The problem of original sin in Christian terms. The incontinent man usually does not do the best or bravest thing, but sometimes he does it so that he is not completely closed off from the good. Most people consider him to be a coward, but sometimes he surprises them. <clears throat> the vicious man, on the other hand, is the man who, with a bad habit, and thus he always does the wrong thing and never uh, gives it much thought because he has formed himself to choose the extreme away from virtue. Finally, bestiality means particular heinous acts. Aristotle gives the example of mothers eating their children as the extreme. He merely implies that some such extreme brutalities, we see them in the paper fairly frequently, do take place and must be accounted for. Again, here Aristotle wants to know how firmly differing habits are embedded in our soul. If I know a man is merely continent in any area, that is to say he usually does the right thing, but sometimes he doesn't, I will watch my billfolds when he is around more carefully. If I know he is a sneaking thief, that is, that's his habit, I will take pains to guard my billfold at all times. So the consideration makes a difference. That is, our estimate of the virtue and vice makes a difference. If we consider our neighbor or our acquaintance to be virtuous, we will act in one way with him. If we consider him vicious and lacking in temperance or control of anger, 
we will deal with him in another way. The so-called double syllogism means that we want to know just what do we do or how we explain the process by which we make choices to do this or that thing, action, so that we can be praised or blamed for it. Everyone has experienced implicitly doing these things. What Aristotle does is merely sketch out the process so that we can see it in our own souls. We do it almost automatically, uh, usually. Aristotle does not use the phrase double syllogism, but he gives examples of it. Basically, he wants to explain why it is that we are culpable or praiseworthy for our acts. He wants to understand what we do. The answer is because we choose them. Aristotle had said that no one can choose anything except under the heading of the good. The will or power of choice is directed to the mind's understanding of something that might be done, something that might be done. So it's a question of prudence. In other words, we cannot do something wrong unless at the same time we do it under the rubric of doing something good. The double syllogism explains how this is done. Double syllogism means that a in a possible argument, two major premises are found and a minor premise that could be used with either major premise. All unjust acts are wrong. All acts have some pleasure connected with them. Let us suppose some act which at the same time has a pleasure connected with it and something unjust connected with it. We are thus discussing the rational process by which we choose evil or good in our souls. If we choose under the first premise, that is, if we see that the question before us is primarily one of contrary to justice, we will, if we are just, not do it. But it is possible to choose to argue under the second major premise of pleasure, which as such is good in all other things uh, being equal. Then we suppress our acknowledge of the other premise and choose the argument under the second premise. This means that the same, at the same time, we do a pleasurable act which is still unjust, but is pleasurable. We know that we did not fully consider the whole of the reality of which choice is before us. That is, the theoretical origin of culpability or responsibility if we act well.
To illustrate this principle, suppose there are two pieces of very good cake. A mother says that each of the brothers can have one of uh, the pieces when he comes home from school. That is the premise of justice. The cake, the pieces of cake are also very good, and that is the premise of pleasure. One brother comes home and is very hungry and loves the kind of cake that is there. He knows that one is for him and one for his brother. He eats the first piece and justice is done. He does violates no rule. Then he contemplates the second one. Since he is so hungry, which is true, and since it is very good, which is true, he chooses the premise that allows him to eat the cake, which he does. The second brother comes home, no cake. He confronts the brother. You ate my cake. The other brother says, but I was hungry. It's my favorite cake. These are true. But he deliberately suppresses the justice part. That is to say, one piece belongs to the brother. Had he been just, the cake would have been there when the brother came home. The evil, the moral evil, is the lack of justice in his pleasurable act. This is why evil is the lack of a good which we should put into our free acts. The third part of Book 7 and the first part of Book 10 deal with pleasure. There are four major tractates in the ten books of Aristotle's Ethics. There is a tractate on happiness, which is basically Book 1 and 10. There is a tractate on the virtues, which are basically Books 2, 3, uh, 4, 5, 6, and part of 7. And then there is a tractate on pleasure, which is the end of book 8 and the beginning of book 10, and then the tractate on friendship, which is books 8 and 9. So if you remember that, that that's kind of what the content of the book, of the whole book is, these four tractates, four discussions, and how they fit together. Basically says that every human act ought to have its own proper pleasure. There are pleasures connected with seeing, hearing, tasting, thinking, willing, sex, activities, running, uh, smelling, and whatever we can do. The question is, however, are the pleasures independent of the act in which they exist? The pleasure inheres in the act. The morality of the pleasure is decided by, not itself, but by the morality of the act. If the act is good, the pleasure is good. But if the act is bad, the pleasure still will be a pleasure. But its order will, and this is what the double syllogism was about, one major premise says it was 
the cake was belongs to my brother justice the second major premise said the cake is good both of those are true then i have to say but i will eat it or not eat it uh the minor premise uh and therefore i have to go back and choose which argument i i decide to use to justify my action if i choose the justice i don't eat it if i choose the pleasure i do eat it so evil exists in the lack of a good and what ought to be there Moral evil is the failure to put into existence what ought to be there. Remember that Aristotle had said in Book 6 that the norm of human morality in action, that is in human deeds, is not what is done, but what ought to be done. Thus, each act we do has two aspects, what is done and what ought to be done in that particular circumstances. So what is done does not exhaust the reality of the act because overshadowing the same act is the what ought to be done on which we are in some sense aware. <clears throat> Remember that pleasure is connected with book one, a possible end. We can mentally try to separate pleasure from the act in which it belongs. But in reality, it still depends for its morality on whether the act is good or bad in its proper understanding. That is, it is a good or bad act according to voluntariness and the double syllogism. Books 8 and 9 next bring up the great tractate on friendship. This treatise is one of the highlights of all philosophical literature, and indeed of human experience itself. Aristotle asks all the relevant questions about friendship of the young and of the old, about the highest forms and the differing forms of friendship. You must understand the relations of book 8 and 9 to book 5, the book on justice. You must also note that Aristotle devoted two books to friendship and one to justice, as if to suggest which he considered to be the more important. Indeed, he says that friendship is more important to the palace than justice. Have you wonder, ever wondered why? So justice deals with our relation to others. As I said, it's a very cold virtue. And it seems to be incomplete because we don't reach to the very person and nature of the other, whereas friendship does do that. And Aristotle is pointing that out. <clears throat> Here I would note several essays on friendship that I have written uh, that you might find helpful. The first one is in At the Limits of Political Philosophy in Chapter 12. The second one is called Aristotle on Friendship, which is in the Classical Bulletin in 1989 and is also in my book, The Mind That is Catholic. Redeeming the Time has a chapter on friendship, and What is God Like has one on friendship. On the Unseriousness of Human Affairs, 
also has a chapter on friendship. Aristotle is dealing with the fact that justice, the most terrible and the most uh, abstract uh, virtue, needs softening. The question is both justice and friendship. They both deal with our relations to others. What is different about friendship is the notion of reciprocity, of intelligence, feelings, and sentiment. So just as it doesn't matter whether the other person cares about us or not if we are uh, just, whereas the whole point about friendship is reciprocity, a mutual sharing. Aristotle classifies friendship into three kinds, those of utility, those of pleasure, and those of the highest things. He is basically describing different relationships that we all experience. He ranks these relationships, but does not mean that they are necessarily bad if they are not the highest. Aristotle has a number of insights in this section that are of great interest. For example, he wants to know, can we have many friends? His answer is yes, many friends of utility, perhaps, or even of pleasure, but not of the highest things. He wants to know whether God is lonely. That is, God supposedly has no friends. And since this is a human perfection, if God does not uh, have, if uh, the perfection does not exist in God, then something seems to be lacking in God. Aristotle does not reach the answer to this question, as does St. Thomas later on with the help of Revelation. Aristotle asks how friendships are dissolved, or basically, what is their uh, basis? If someone thinks it is a friendship, say, of pleasure, and another thinks it is of the highest things, the friendship has not the same basis and will be dissolved eventually. <clears throat> there are some memorable things in these chapters, and I am going to read them uh, so that you may uh, consider them as we go along. The first one is from 1139b14 to 18, and it reads, Let us say then that there are five states in which the soul grasps the truth in its affirmation or denials. These are craft, art, techne, scientific knowledge, intelligence, that is phronesis or prudence, or moral wisdom, then wisdom, Sophia, and understanding, nous, for belief and supposition admit of being false. So belief and supposition, so if you merely believe and suppose a thing, they can be false. So these are the five points that were in book six uh, that he dealt with with regard to the intellectual understanding of the virtues. 
The next citation. Now it is rare that a divine, that is a godlike man, exists, he says. So we have very few people who are of superhuman virtue, or even not many of uh, pure virtue. I tend to use a rule of the thumb saying that maybe there are uh, half a percent of people who are very virtuous or very bestial. Uh, there may be six or eight percent of the people who are virtuous or vicious. That is, they have it the have the habit or the or the vice of a particular virtue. And then the rest of us are either continent or incontinent. That is, they we're either mostly virtuous or mostly unvirtuous, but can be otherwise. <clears throat> this passage is as close as Aristotle gets uh, to saying that we are finite and fallen beings as a question of ordinary observation about what we are in fact. The third citation reads, and it's from a 1147a uh, 4-9, and it reads, Besides, since there are two types of premises, uh, someone's action may well conflict with his knowledge if he has both types of premises. We're talking about the double syllogism here, two types of premises. But uses only the universal premise and not the particular premise. <clears throat> For the particular premise states the particular and it is uh, particular actions that are done. Moreover, in both types of premises, there are differing types of universals. <clears throat> One type referring to the agent himself and the other uh, referring to the object. Perhaps, that is, someone knows that A, dry things benefit every human being and that he himself is a human being, or that this sort of thing is dry, but he neither does or does not, but he either does not have or does not activate the knowledge uh, uh, that he has. And this particular thing is of that sort. Let us say it's really dry. <clears throat> Hence, these ways of knowing and not knowing make such a remarkable difference <clears throat> that it seems quite intelligible for someone acting against his knowledge to have the one sort of knowledge that is uh, uh, without the premises, uh, but astounding if he has the other sort uh, and continues to do that. The end of the quote. The formulation of the double syllogism. We always act with knowledge, but we also can avoid or prevent ourselves, uh, uh, make ourselves not to know the whole picture. That is, leave aside the influence of one major premise or the other. A second statement of the double syllogism is also found in 1147A31 to B4. 
The next quotation, some sources of pleasure are necessary. Others are choice-worthy in themselves, but can be taken uh, to an excess. So we can, uh, uh, we necessarily enjoy good things that we eat them, uh, but sometimes they can be taken to excess. The next citation, some people are overcome by or pursue some of these naturally fine and good things to the extent that conflicts with reason. That is, they take honors or children or parents more seriously than is right. For though these are certainly good and people are praised for taking them seriously, still excess about them is also possible. If, for example, the nature this is from 1149a 7 and 8 if the natural character of someone makes him afraid of everything even the noise of a mouse he is a coward with a bestial sort of cowardice so you can you ought to be over able to overcome certain things uh, at the cost of uh, not doing your duty. Aristotle is not saying that a mouse might not frighten us, but rather that if we fail to do what we ought to because we do not overcome uh, the fear to do what we ought, we are cowards of a rather exaggerated sort. Think of the babysitter who abandons a child because he or she is afraid of a mouse. And then he says in number seven of these citations, in 1149b14, those who plot are more unjust, the end of the quote. Why is that the case? Why are those who plot and therefore do something unjust, more unjust than someone who does the same thing but doesn't uh, conspire to do so. Number eight, quotation from 1150A8. A bad human being can do innumerable more bad things than a beast. That is to say, a beast can do some bad things, but human beings can do much worse things. Aristotle says that a man who lives without a city is either a beast or a god. He also says that men can be worse than beasts if they choose to do so. The next quotation is from 1150b, um, 13 to 14. But it is surprising if someone is overcome by what most people can resist. The end of the quote. So, if most people can resist the thing and we can't do it, uh, it's surprising. It is. It's not. It's not uh, right that you can't do that. <clears throat> the next one. For virtue preserves the origin, while vice corrupts it, and in action 
The end we act for, book one, is the origin, that is, the end, why we do it, to be happy to do it this way, as the assumptions are in the origins of mathematics. Assume, assume a triangle is a three-sided uh, figure inscribed in a semicircle as a, as a hypothesis. Reason does not teach the origins either in mathematics or in action. With actions, it is virtue that teaches the origin, either natural or habitual, and that teaches correct belief about the origin. <clears throat> the end of the quote. This is one of the most insightful passages in Aristotle. What it means, basically, is that if we have bad habits or vices, we will not properly see the end we should be choosing. We will spend all of our effort in seeking uh, to choose the chosen end, even if deviant. The penalty of living in vices is not clearly seeing reality that we should choose. Though, if we live in vices, we won't clearly see the ends for which we ought to exist. Number 11, I'll quote from 1152a8-9. Moreover, someone is not intelligent simply by knowing. He must also act on his knowledge. End of the quote. This is basic Aristotelian doctrine. You don't become virtuous by simply knowing about virtue. You don't become just by knowing the definition of just justice. You have to actually live justice or be just in particular circumstances. You can know <clears throat> that thievery, what thievery is, but that does not guarantee that you will not be a thief. Number 12, from 1152a, 25 to 27. Incontinence and continence are concerned with what exceeds the state of most people. The continent person abides by reason more than most people are capable of doing. The incontinent person, less. The majority of people are, uh, in the quote, the majority of people are neither really virtuous nor vicious. They are in between. That is either continent or incontinent. Most people fall here most of the time. As I say, some most people say 80% of people are mostly uh, virtuous or mostly continent or incontinent, not virtuous or vicious. This is simply Aristotle's judgment of experience of all human beings he knows, and this section spells out the reason for it. Number 13, <clears throat> from 1152b1-2. It is proper to the political philosopher to study pleasure and pain, since he is the ruling craftsman of the end which we refer to in calling something unconditionally bad or good, the end of the quote. 
That is to say, the political philosopher can use pleasure or pain in order to enforce the law. He can penalize or he can reward uh, uh, some action and that this uh, uh, action then will be uh, important in achieving it. So the political philosopher, the political uh, philosopher must uh, be able to understand that. This is the connection of law and virtue or vice. The law attaches rewards or punishments to the fulfillment or non-fulfillment of the law in order to prevent activities of vicious men by fear of punishment or to encourage good men and others by rewards. <clears throat> the 14th one, number 1153A1-2. For there are also pleasures without pain or appetite, that is, pleasures of studying, contemplation, and those which nature, in which nature lacks nothing. Think about this. Things like seeing and smelling is also an example of something that doesn't have an opposite. So Aristotle says, <clears throat> there are some things that exist without pain, without an opposite pain. And the example he gives is study or contemplation, thinking. It is simply a good thing. And 15 and last, 15th, not last, number 1153, 22 to 24, he says, quote, neither intelligence, that is say prudence, nor any state The point is that there is such a thing as intellectual pleasure, a point that I try to make in my book on reasonable pleasures. And this is where the source of it is in Aristotle. Uh, he says, and this is an experience that we must discover uh, uh, as, for example, to discover that ice cream or beer has a pleasurable uh, pleasure connected with it. So all things, including thinking, has its own peculiar pleasure which you have to experience. Number 16. Some maintain, on the contrary, that we are happy when we are broken on the wheel, that is, tortured, or fall into terrible misfortune, provided we are good. Willingly or unwillingly, these people are talking nonsense. The end of the quote. That's 15, 1153b, 17, 18 to 20. Aristotle calls something silly when it is silly. He is not, note, saying that we should betray our country or our friends because we are tortured. He just says that it is not really very pleasant. It is not something that is happy. <clears throat> Number 17, 1153b, 35 to 7. Quote, However, the bodily pleasures have taken over the name of pleasure because people most often aim at them. 
and all share in them. And so, since these are the only pleasures they know, people suppose they are the only pleasures that exist. The end of the quote. Aristotle says somewhere, uh, I cannot see for the moment, where that politicians who have no sense of higher virtues will usually be found pursuing bodily pleasure. So one of the great deficiencies is not to experience all of the pleasures that are available to us as human beings. And therefore, if we only experience a few of them, we will think this is all that there is. And number 18. We must, however, not only state the true view, but also explain the false view, since an explanation of that of that false view promotes confidence. For we have an apparently reasonable explanation. Well, when we have a reasonable explanation of why a false view appears true, that makes us more confident in the uh, uh, true view uh, that we have. Hence, we should say, why bodily pleasures appear more choice-worthy. So, the end of the quote. That's from 1154, A23 to 24. So, this is the classic statement of the method that Aristotle and St. Thomas after him follow. It is in line with the Socratic tradition. You do not understand the thing unless you understand the argument against a given truth and why someone might hold it. So in order to understand the thing, you must understand the argument for it and the arguments against it and why they make sense or do not make sense. I think I shall <clears throat> not cite things from the friendship uh, tractate. One ends up citing the whole uh, treatise except for two. The first, from 1155a5 to uh, 10. Aristotle says, For no one would choose to live without friends, even if he had all of the other goods. For in fact, rich people and holders of powerful positions, even more than other people, seem to need friends. For how would one uh, benefit from such prosperity if one had no opportunity for beneficence, which is most often displayed and most highly praised in relation to friends. And how would one guard and protect one's pr uh, prosperity without friends? The end of the quote. And the second citation <clears throat> And last is from 1155a24 to 25, where Aristotle simply says, quote, Moreover, friendship would seem to hold cities together, and legislators would seem to be more concerned about friendship than justice. The end of the quote. 
This observation is one of the most remarkable statements in all of political philosophy. How one understands it is crucial. Some want to make everyone, uh, by law, friends. Aristotle knows this is impossible and destructive <clears throat> of friendship itself. He understands that any society uh, rather must be filled with many small groups of friends who are not friends with one another, but who are friends or amiable to everyone. So see the in book four, uh, the essay on amiability, uh, one that maybe we will uh, read later. So this is the end of uh, books uh, seven and eight. We still have the last two books, and we have to complete the discussion on friendship and pleasure and happiness in these books, and therefore the whole book. So as you see, as we go along, step by step, Aristotle takes us through the logical sequence of what we need to do to look at ourselves and to see what goes on within ourselves and how to rule ourselves such that we are virtuous and not vicious. The end of the lecture. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.